0: Welcome to Stuff You Missed in History Class from howstuffworks.com.
1: Hello and welcome to the podcast. I'm Holly Fry and I'm Tracy V Wilson and I would like to apologize for my slight cold voice today. <laughs> <laughs>
0: Uh, you can just start singing a torch song in the middle if you get a horse. It'll be good. Uh, this week, we are going to be celebrating a major milestone in a prominent park in the United States, because it is the 150th anniversary this year of Brooklyn's Prospect Park, and there's so much celebrating to do that we're actually going to take two episodes to do it. So here's how that's going to work. Uh, in this first episode, we're going to talk about Prospect Park's beginnings from an idea born of a little bit of competitive civic pride to a realized public space that could serve the recreational needs of the community. And then uh, we're going to jump a little bit, because if we tried to tell the comprehensive story of Prospect Park it would be its own podcast for several months. Uh, there's a lot that's happened in its history. But then we're going to jump a little bit in the second episode and we're going to talk about how Prospect Park is so much part of Brooklyn's historical and cultural identity and how the last several decades in particular have been a time of great effort to rejuvenate and restore the park after it experienced a period of decline.
1: In some ways, the story of Prospect Park really begins with Central Park's creation in the late 1850s that catalyzed a competitive desire for a similar space in Brooklyn. But even before that, as early as the 1820s, there was a lot of serious discussion about the need for a park space in Brooklyn. In the 1830s, the governor of New York, William L. Marcy, tasked a commission with exploring the possibilities of a park system for Brooklyn, and the result was a plan for 11 parks.
0: But that plan was only partially executed. Uh, A lot of the proposed parks that were on it were really quite small, and the allotted space that they had would not meet the needs of the area's growing population. And one of the parks that did come to fruition from that plan was Fort Green Park, which was championed by none other than Walt Whitman, who wrote of the need for this park in his role as editor of the Brooklyn Daily Eagle in the 1840s. Uh, Fort Green is actually where Whitman is said to have written Leaves of
1: Grass. But once Manhattan's Central Park was created in 1857, that really lit the competitive fire. Brooklyn wanted to develop a comparable space for its blue-collar residents, who wouldn't necessarily have the option of traveling to a resort in the summer. And in 1859, a new Brooklyn Park Commission was authorized by the New York legislature. One of the parcels of land that the committee
0: acquired was a large plot that included the reservoir at Mount Prospect, although not Mount Prospect itself. After another plot of land, which was actually larger, was deemed to be too far from the center of Brooklyn to be ideal for the project, the Prospect Park location was chosen for development, and James Stranahan, who was a prominent civic leader of Brooklyn, was chosen as chairman of the Park Commission.
1: Throughout the late 1800s, James Stranahan worked to bolster Brooklyn's image. New Yorkers looked down on Brooklyn and its citizens, and he wanted to change that. When it came to Prospect Park, he thought that unless Brooklyn developed its own impressive green space, it would just be relegated to a role as a quote second-rate suburb of a greater city. Yeah, he's a really interesting figure and could easily be an episode of his own. He might be in the future. Yeah, perhaps. Uh, and the Park Commission hired Egbert
0: L. Villay, uh in 1860 to plan this new park. And Vilay had actually worked on the design of Central Park, but his plans were abandoned in favor of a design by Frederick Law Olmsted
1: and Calvert Vox. Vilay had some bitterness about Olmsted and Vox, and in his writing about Prospect Park, he took an opportunity to dig at his rival's. Some of the elements of the Central Park design that Olmsted and Vox had created were man-made, including the creation of a lake. Ville, uh wrote that this was not only an expensive idea that should not be copied in Prospect Park, but also that doing so would be, quote, an infringement upon good taste and upon that regard for the beauties of nature possessed by every cultivated mind.
0: It's a, it's a little snooty. Uh yeah there there's definitely some um uh, some cattiness there but uh unfortunately the civil war actually thwarted Viles Prospect Park plans there was a construction moratorium due to the war effort. And during the years of delay, the park commission looked at other designs and ultimately out of this sense of competition with central park decided that they wanted a bigger park in Brooklyn than what they were initially looking at. And so once the civil war ended and they were able to move forward with plans, the commission staged another design competition. They basically um, asked people to submit their ideas for a new bigger plan. And in 1865, Ville's rival, Calvert Vox, was chosen as Prospect Park's designer, which really had to be, like, just a kick in the teeth after <laughs> after Central Park.
1: Before we get into the Prospect Park project, we should give a quick bit of background on Calvert Vox and his most famous partner, Frederick Law Olmsted.
0: Yeah, if you are a New Yorker, you probably know their names, and if you are at all into landscape or architecture, you probably know both of their names. They're pretty uh, famous. But, in case you don't know anything about them, we have you
1: covered, yeah, Olmstead uh, in particular one is one who immediately jumps to mind,
0: yeah, yeah, they're definitely famous names in this arena. Uh, Vox was born in England in 1824. He was the son of a London apothecary surgeon. And as a young man, he left his studies at the Merchant Taylor School in 1843 so that he could pursue an architecture apprenticeship under Lewis Knuckles Cottingham, who influenced Vox's work for years. While Vox learned his chosen profession and worked under Cottingham, he also worked odd jobs, including as a calligrapher working on maps and signs.
1: In 1850, Vox met American landscape designer Andrew Jackson Downing at a London art exhibit where some of Vox's drawings were on display. Downing wanted to expand his firm and he needed an architect. And in Vox's work, he thought he'd found the right man for the job. He offered Calvert Vox a position on the spot, which he accepted. And so the young Englishman moved to New York.
0: And before long, Vox was actually made a partner at the firm, and he and Downing collaborated several times, including on a project to improve the public grounds that surrounded the White House and Smithsonian Institution. And the pair most likely would have continued their partnership into the design of Central Park, but Downing died in a boiler accident while he was aboard the steamer Henry Clay in 1852. So even though they became very close and worked closely together, they really only had a two-year relationship. Uh, Vox, however, would later name one of his children after his friend and collaborator.
1: Vox married Mary Swan McKenzie in 1854, and the couple had four children, two sons and two daughters. They moved to a house on the New Jersey Palisades with a view of the Hudson River. His friends were poets, painters, and journalists, and he was a member of the New York's, of New York's Century Association, which promoted the arts and literature. And
0: Calvert Vox found the U.S. to be a little too obsessed with financial wealth and too void of artistic education. And that mentality really fueled his work. And his home designs that he was doing really broke with tradition. So they favored fewer of the rarely used formal spaces. Think like formal dining rooms and formal sitting rooms. And instead, he designed in more beautiful everyday rooms. So they were just as lovely as any of those formal rooms, but they were intended for everyday use. He also designed the original building for the Metropolitan Museum of Art and
1: the American Museum of Natural History. Unlike Fox, Frederick Law Olmsted, born in 1822 in Hartford, Connecticut, did not attend school to become a landscape designer or an architect. He lost his mother at the age of three, and his father and stepmother sent him away to a religious school at age seven. He stayed in the tutelage of the clergy until he was 15.
0: Young Olmstead was really intensely curious, and he was an explorer of both the outdoors and of information by his nature. But he wasn't terribly disciplined, and that's one of the reasons uh, probably that he opted not to attend Yale when he was accepted there. But that outgoing free spirit of his would later serve as the perfect balance to Vox's English propriety and reserve.
1: He drifted from job to job as a young man, working as a surveyor, a farmer, and a journalist, among other things, while his father, a dry goods merchant, supplemented his income. He had no intention of ever designing parks, and even after he and Vox designed Central Park, he left New York and eventually became a manager of the Mariposa Mining Estate in California.
0: Yeah, I find it so interesting that even after creating Central Park, he wasn't like, this is my job now. He was like, well, next, what's next? (laughs) Uh, He had married Mary Perkins Olmsted in 1859, who was his brother John's widow, uh, taking on parenthood of John and Mary's three children in the process. And Mary and Frederick would go on to have four children of their own together, although two of them died in childhood.
1: Once Vox had been approved for the Prospect Park Project, he insisted that Olmsted join. But Olmsted, who was busy with his California job, wasn't particularly eager to take on the task. He had taken a few landscape jobs while he was in California, including chairing a commission to oversee Yosemite State Park. But Vox, who would not take Olmsted's no for an answer, continued to work on persuading his friend to join him. Eventually,
0: Vox's promise that the Prospect Park project would give them a chance to create a park for all of the people of Brooklyn, cutting across social strata, and with the freedom to do as they wish, convinced Olmsted to take the job. And an added factor was the fact that the mining operation was fail- failing. In
1: 1866, Olmsted made his way back across the country, and he and Vox started work in earnest on Prospect Park.
0: And before we get into the hard work that Olmsted, Vox, and their team put into turning a blank slate into a park for all people, we're first going to pause and have a quick word from one of our sponsors. Vox's initial plan for the park augmented the plan that Vile had created by adding several hundred acres. He was quick to point out that he had found Vile's design clumsy and inelegant, so clearly those two did like to snipe at each other. Uh, Vox's proposed layout is more or less how the park is today, with a large meadow, a wooded ravine, and a lake on the southern end of the property. The lake, Vox promised Stranahan, would be twice the size of Central Parks Lake.
1: For inspiration as they developed their vision, Vox and Olmsted turned to 18th and early 19th century British landscapes. Vox had grown up among them, and Olmsted had visited and interviewed landscapers in Britain. Birkenhead Park in Merseyside, England was of particular interest to them. Like the Prospect Park Project, it had started out on an undeveloped plot that basically was considered wasteland.
0: In a report to the Brooklyn Park Commission written in 1866, Olmsted wrote, quote, Although we cannot have wild mountain gorges, for instance, on the park, we may have rugged ravines shaded with trees and made picturesque with shrubs, the forms and arrangement of which remind us of mountain scenery. We may perhaps even secure some slight approach to the mystery, variety, and luxuriance of tropical scenery by an assemblage of certain forms of vegetation, gay with flowers, and intricate and mazy with vines and creepers, ferns, rushes, and broad-leaved plants.
1: As the pair worked on their design, they focused on the visual. The park was intended to offer both beautiful views of the surrounding city, as well as pastoral tableau within the park itself, Every feature, from footbridges to arches to the, repl- to the placement of shrubbery, was considered with how visitors would see it.
0: There was also a very, very conscious effort to make the park a place that transcended social convention. It was intended that the rich and the poor would enjoy this space together and find commonality as a community. Drives, walkways, and paths were designed to
1: bring people together and create a democratized experience for one and all. There had been a section included in VLA's park designs called the East Side Lands. This area sat on Flatbush Avenue. Olmsted and Vox did not include this in their design, but instead suggested that the city set aside that property for things like libraries and museums instead. Stranahan saw this as an opportunity to pay for the additional acreage that was included in Vox's initial layout. They could sell that tract of land and use the money for additional land acquisition.
0: But this was not a universally accepted plan. There were arguments that it should be included in the park. And some of the landowners who had given up that land for the park wanted it back if it it wasn't going to be used for this big green space for the community. That battle over the tract of land went on actually for more than two decades. But finally, in 1888, that flatbush parcel was sold.
1: Prospect Park's construction started on July 1st, 1866. It was a chaotic time as there were so many workmen on the grounds. There were up to 1800 workers there on any given day along with mules and horses. They worked a 10 hour day and made a dollar and 70 cents per day for their labor. Additionally, one of the early challenges was rounding up the wandering livestock from neighboring properties and returning them to their home turf so that the work could be done without these obstacles. (laughs) These, these little living,
0: wandering obstacles. <laughs> um, yeah, there was a, a, a thing that I read in, in one of my, sources that said that Stranahan was particularly pleased with himself because the workmen at Prospect Park were working a longer day for less than what Manhattan had paid for Central Park's workers. I think they paid $2 a day for eight hours of labor. That's and so a... he was, he was very pleased that they had managed to make this budgetary move, even though from uh, the, from the standpoint of the workmen, that kind of sucks.
1: Kind of not a bragging point there. Right.
0: Uh, One of the major efforts in those early days of the construction was the development of a drainage system under the meadow. Olmsted was in charge of the installation of the park's system of specially treated clay drain pipes, which was designed to handle as much as two inches of rain per hour, taking runoff through a series of pipes to drain into the waterways. This system, designed to run into existing bodies of water rather than a sewer system, was considered way ahead of its time.
1: The meadow was cleared of peat and replaced with a mixture of soils designed to create a fertile bed. Carriageways and a walking path along the meadow were given the best possible sight lines through careful placement, often routing them to raised up ground.
0: Dead trees were removed, and surviving trees were pruned and thousands and thousands of trees were brought in. More than forty thousand trees, for example, were planted in the park in eighteen sixty nine at a, and at that time, there were more than a hundred thousand more in the nursery that were being prepared for future placement.
1: The lake was the biggest construction challenge. It had to be excavated, and as it reached a depth of seven feet, which is a little more than two meters. In some places, a temporary rail track for horse carriages had to be developed to carry away the mass amounts of earth that the workers were removing. And the lake had some problems
0: initially. So the liner of the lake, which was made of this clay paste, was too porous and it leaked. And the solution, it turned out, was silt, which was settled into the clay liner and created a seal. And that liner, repaired with silt, is actually still there.
1: The other issue of the lake was that even though the drainage design fed into it, there was still too much water evaporation, as much as 5,000 gallons a day in warm weather. To address this issue, an impressive well was built. It was 54 feet, or 16.4 meters in diameter, and its descent into the ground was carefully controlled, dropping an inch at a time as workers dug out the ground beneath it until it reached a depth of 70 feet, which is 21.3 meters.
0: Vox designed the Well and Boiler House for the well, and that house actually still stands. The well itself provided water to the park until 1911, when the increasing demands of the park catalyzed
1: a switch to city-provided water. While the well and boiler house remains, some of the structures designed by Vox, such as the thatched shelters, no longer exist. But consistent throughout the buildings that he designed was their integration into the natural landscape, In some cases, such as the concert grove, the landscape and architecture came together to create one cohesive design. The park commissioners opened the
0: park to the public on October 19th of 1867, while it was still under construction. It took several more years for most of the structures to be completed, but by 1873, the majority of the buildings were finished. But in that year, the banking firm of J. Cook & Company, which was heavily invested in the U.S. railroad industry, closed due to bankruptcy.
1: The collapse of such a giant in the finance realm caused a panic and catalyzed a decade-long depression. That meant that some of the elements of Prospect Park's architectural design were shelved indefinitely. Fox had designed a restaurant, a stone observation tower, and a carriage concourse that would never come to fruition because of the Panic of 1873.
0: Yeah, they basically finished any projects that were in process already when that panic happened, but nothing else got added to the roster. And coming up, we're going to get into how this new space was actually used in its early years and what happened to its creators after they moved on to other projects. But first, we are going to take a quick little sponsor break. So before the break, uh, we were talking about the panic of 1873 and how it, it stopped construction on the remaining buildings that had been planned for Prospect Park. But even with that new construction halted, the park really was still a fully realized public space that had been open for several years at that point and was drawing crowds. Anyone could enjoy the spectacular landscape and the lovely walking paths or any of the other amenities of Prospect Park without spending any money at all.
1: New Hampshire and Southbound Sheep wandered in the Long Meadow. Archery and croquet were also popular there. The dairy offered sandwiches and fresh milk for purchase and was situated in a spot where no carriage lanes approached it, so the area immediately surrounding it became a popular place for families to relax and let children play out of the way of danger.
0: Picnics in the park were, of course, particularly popular, but that was in part because Central Park didn't allow picnicking, so some New Yorkers from Manhattan would go over to Brooklyn to enjoy a meal while relaxing outdoors. And this actually caused some issues, uh, as some of Brooklyn's residents were not super enthused to have their park used by the Manhattan crowd, claiming that they often dressed too casually and they left behind trash from their meals.
1: And with people who had the finances to put toward park diversions, carriage rides around the park were immensely popular, particularly in the evenings as the sun went down and the gas lamps came on to light the lanes. A carousel powered by an elderly blind horse was installed in 1874. Yeah, that
0: carousel was so popular that they were like,
1: we need another one of those. Uh, (laughs) The park's
0: parade ground, which had been added to the south end of the park in 1867, was put to use for military parades, which drew crowds of spectators. But with increasing frequency in the park's early years, the parade ground also became a popular spot for sporting events such as baseball, rugby and even polo.
1: Throughout the 1870s, there were concerts in the park on Saturday afternoons at the Concert Grove on the Music Island stage, although the acoustics combined with breezes on the lake's water were not very good. They made for kind of a mediocre listening experience. Eventually, musical performances were moved to a temporary venue, and then a dedicated music pagoda was built in the 1880s with much better sound.
0: Olmsted and Vox dissolved their partnership in 1873, but they remained friends and they did occasionally collaborate on special projects together. Their last endeavor as a team, which also included their sons John Charles Olmsted and Downing Vox, was the Andrew Jackson Downing Park located in Newburgh, New York.
1: After Prospect Park, Olmsted went on to become an incredibly sought after and famous landscape designer. He worked on parks throughout the United States and Canada. Vox designed estates and their surrounding grounds and eventually became the chief architect of the New York City Park Commission. Vox
0: died in 1895 at the age of 70, and his cause of death was not determined. Uh, It's kind of one of those sort of weird situations. Uh, After he had gone for a shoreline walk at Gravesend Bay while he was visiting his son... His body was found by a pier with a bruise on his head and a cut over one eye. He was also missing a shoe, his hat, and his glasses. And while it's entirely probable that Vox, who was not in tremendously good health at this point, might have tripped or fainted and had an accidental drowning situation, there were sort of gossipy theories that started circulating at the time that he might have committed suicide.
1: As Olmsted's age advanced, the famed landscape designer developed dementia. He was confined at the McLean Asylum in Massachusetts in 1898 at the request of his wife, and he died there in 1903. The landscape of the McLean Asylum had been designed by none other than Olmstead himself when he was a younger man.
0: Author David P. Colley wrote of the creative relationship of Olmsted and Box, quote, One could imagine Prospect Park as the product of a perfect collaboration between two partners at the peak of their abilities, an alliance so effective that neither man was ever as creative as when they worked together here.
1: It was Prospect Park's champion on the Park Commission, James Stranahan, who had perhaps the most poignant farewell to the project After he died in his summer home in Saratoga Springs, New York, Stranahan was laid to rest in Greenwood Cemetery in Brooklyn. His funeral procession passed through the park en route to the cemetery, and his friends and employees of the park lined the road.
0: And while Stranahan isn't mentioned in association with the park the way Olmsted and Vox usually are, there is a statue of him at the Grand Army Plaza entrance with a Latin inscription that reads, uh translated reader if you want my monument look around you and that is incidentally a copy of part of the epitaph of 17th and 18th century architect christopher wren like his his christopher wren's son wrote that and then it was copied on stranahan's uh statue in the park so that's the early years of prospect park yeah what are we doing next time, Holly? So next time, uh, as I mentioned at the top of the episode, we're going to talk about some of the more modern stuff that went on, uh, that's gone on in Prospect Park and sort of how it, it has been a part of Brooklyn's uh, community and cultural identity. Uh, and we'll have some guests on the show from the Prospect Park Alliance uh as well as uh another guest we're gonna have some people talking with expertise about uh prospect park and what it's what it's meant for brooklyn over the years so join us for that that's in part two uh and i will say now and i will say again then thank you to the prospect park alliance for helping us put this episode together uh so yeah join us for that and to close out this episode i also have a little bit of listener mail it's a short one and it's a correction. Uh, it is from our listener, Kristen, and it is about our John Kidwell pineapple episode. She writes, Dear Tracy and Holly, I just want to say how much I love your podcast and thank my daughter for introducing me to it a year ago. I have one small issue with the Kidwell pineapple episode, Manoa Valley, which is very near Waikiki. Uh, it is the valley directly above. It is, however, not near the North Shore. Waikiki is on the central leeward side of Oahu, and the North Shore is on the windward side and about as far apart as you can get running north to south on the island. After living in Manoa Valley for 4.5 years, I was really thrilled to hear a podcast about Hawaii. This is one of those times, one, that's my fault, and I'm sorry, but it is also one of those times where um, I realize how much near is a relative term. (laughs) Oh, yeah. Because Oahu is very small in the big picture. Like if you live somewhere, you know, for example, like I live just outside the main city of Atlanta. Uh, (laughs) I'm laughing because I know where you live in relation to Atlanta. So it takes me, you know, 30 minutes to get to work. Which I would say is near. Right. (laughs) I bet other people would not so that's some of it is that when I look at Oahu, it all looks kind of near to each other to me. So that's my fault for not really thinking about the the um the relative distance if you are on Oahu of what is near and far apart, it all looks near to each other. So
1: I'm so sorry. Yeah. it's, (laughs) It's funny to me how people who live in different places frame the distance that things Are from one another like the folks I know who live in Texas will just drive an hour and a half to get somewhere because Texas is big and things are spread out and that's that's near yeah (laughs) it's sure it's near uh one of the first trips that I made to Massachusetts before moving here we were going to go to a water park uh and my now husband was asking me to put in the directions into his his car GPS uh, and he he said, okay, start with the state. It's in New Hampshire, and I was like, what? Well, we're going to New Hampshire today? <laughs> that's a whole other state. That's forever away, not in New England. Yeah, yeah, uh,
0: yeah. It's a uh, we had a discussion with one of our our drivers while we were in Oahu in December, where he was saying, um, we were asking how long it would take to drive around the whole island, and he said something like two and a half, three hours. And my husband said, that's how long it takes to drive around the perimeter in Atlanta. So that's why my near and far is, is very skewed. <laughs> now I'm thinking about Grover. Cause it's all right. Who, I mean, I'm always thinking about Grover a little, but, <laughs> but thank you. Thank you. Thank you. I am so sorry that I, I framed that in a way that made it sound completely inaccurate. And thank you, Kristen, for fixing that for me. Uh, if you would like to write to us, you can do so at history podcast at howstuffworks.com. You can also find us across the spectrum of social media as at Mist in History. So that applies to uh, Instagram, Twitter, Facebook, Tumblr, Pinterest. I think that's all of them. If it's not, wherever you go, it's still Mist in History. If you would like to visit our parent site, which is HowStuffWorks, you can do that. You can type in almost anything you're interested in in the search bar. You're going to get articles about it. Uh, because there's so much information from years and years of writing and research that's gone on at House of Works. You can visit us at mistinhistory.com where we have, uh, the back catalog of every episode of the show that has ever existed, as well as, uh, show notes for any that Tracy and I have worked on. And if you have been listening recently, we combined it so that our, our sources and any pertinent show note type items are actually on the show page now. There are not two separate entries on our, our website. So it's easy one-stop shopping for history information. Uh, and we encourage you Come and visit us at HowStuffWorks.com and mistinhistory.com.
1: For more on this and thousands of other topics, visit HowStuffWorks.com.